Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast, Canada-China relations or the lack thereof. Why do we need a vaccine passport when we already have the documentation on our phone? Is now the right time to call an election? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Turn it up. I'm I can't sorry. hear it. Yeah, there, there we go. go. You with me? By the way, you're on. Not yet. So how can you stop talking? As soon as I turn the mic on, on you stop talking. I'm confused. Will's got the mic turned up. You're on the air. You said I'm on, but I'm not on. (laughs) Let's get this started before we say something ugly. Go! I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. At least with COVID-19, you can get a vaccination. But what do you do in this heat? Ah. Still shirtless and sitting in the birdbath. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. I think Ons tangled up here. I think that's the most we've gotten out of him in like uh, 73 weeks. Uh, he had no idea the mic was on. That was the problem. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start turning it on without him even knowing. Although that could get us arrested, couldn't it? Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the conversation. There's lots of ways to do that. Uh, you can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, lots to talk about on the show. And of course, uh, the big story is our ongoing, uh, tension between, uh, China and uh, the ongoing tension between China and Canada. Of course, uh, the latest information out, Michael Spatz after being uh, detained uh, since all of this has gone down, now been sentenced to 11 years uh, in prison. They're also talking uh, about a deportation as if that's some sort of lifeline. We'll, we'll talk about that as well. Bring in Rachel Gilmore, national online journalist, Global News. She's with us now. Rachel, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, I'm great. Hope you are too. So uh, we talked about this uh, the other day, Rachel, and we certainly saw this coming, and uh, this is the next shoe, and certainly late last night we started hearing uh, this information come in. Uh, 11 years in prison, the fine and deportation. Can you break this down for us? Because uh, a lot of people are still are really shining a light on that deportation angle. Yeah, so um, he has been sentenced to 11 years. The Canadian government has already said that they plan to appeal the ruling, but as we saw with the case of Robert Schellenberg, appeals don't necessarily go in your favor. Um, but in terms of the deportation, it's not actually contingent on him finishing the sentence. And if you look at there's actually a really interesting parallel case. I don't know if you remember uh, Kevin Garrett, who was detained mm-hmm. in China years ago. Um, he had a very similar situation where there was someone arrested in China who the U- or sorry arrested in Canada who the U.S. wanted extradited, and he was a Chinese citizen. And uh, when he pled guilty, that individual, within 48 hours, Kevin Garrett was sent back home. So, you know, it's possible that if China gets what they want regarding Meng Wanzhou, maybe they'll let Michael Spavor go home, um, even if his sentence isn't done. So that's something that uh, Mark Garneau, the Uh, foreign affairs minister he was really coy about this morning but it's definitely an area we'll be watching so in other words this appears as if uh they have a bit of a parachute uh clause here and that if uh, you play your game right we we have this option here 
Exactly. This whole thing really, unfortunately, is sort of a uh, a chess game and a bargaining game that uh, that China's playing with Canada here that sadly the chips are, you know, people's lives. Um, so it, it's, it's very sad to see, but I think that China's really trying to maintain their leverage um, so that they can get what they want out of the case with Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou. Uh, we've certainly heard that the United States is more and more engaged in this. Uh, I, I heard today someone say that uh, the U.S. are looking at this as if they were, in fact, two U.S. citizens here. Um, what happens moving forward here? And as we talked yesterday, this just seems to be uh, accelerating just as the Huawei CFO case is about to get underway. Yes, absolutely. So um, it's, it's become pretty apparent if you look at the timeline of the uh, particularly Michael Savor and Michael Kovrig, their cases really move in lockstep with Meng Wanzhou's. But um, in terms of uh, the um, the work with being done with the U.S., Mark Garneau made some really interesting kind of comments this morning in his press conference. He kept kind of hinting that um, there's really rigorous stuff happening behind the scenes, and he kept name-dropping the U.S. in that context. And they're so key in this um, sort of deliberation, because while Canada's hands are pretty tied, it would be really unprecedented, although the justice minister can choose not to sign off on Meng Wanzhou's extradition order, it would be very unprecedented for him to do that after court rules that she should be extradited. But the U.S., they can choose to cancel the extradition order. Rachel Gilmore with us, national online journalist with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight. And, of course, uh, see the rest of this on the uh, Global News webpage. Rachel, thanks for the time and the insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thanks. Uh, It has to make you wonder uh, what is in store for Michael Kovrig. And as well in all of this, and, of course, the timeline is is very obvious, uh, uh, the Huawei CFO uh, finished up their process to try to get this thrown out of court yesterday. From what I understand, that didn't happen. And the case is going to proceed. So what happens as we move forward? Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, a professor of political science, Carleton University, with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, thank you, Scott. Same to you. Man, Elliot, we have talked about this uh, so many times, it it seems bizarre uh, to even know where to start. But uh, let's start, uh, before we get to the case, and I want to get to this, what's happening in Vancouver today, or isn't happening. um, uh, Schellenberg first, now Spaver. Are we just to assume that Kovrig, we're going to hear any time now, or is that sort of the final bargaining chip here? It looks as if China is bringing out bigger guns in order to influence the outcome of the Ming Wanzhou situation. Our ambassador there has said these are clearly linked. So the, and, and, and the, the um, outlines of the, and the logic of the situation suggest that we are very closely int, uh, intertwining a whole bunch of stories. Whoops. Mm-hmm. Can you hear Keep me? Keep going. Okay. Uh, it sounds as if I lost you there. Um, we know that uh, Meng Wanzhou's case is now at another critical point. Mind you, it was supposed to have concluded in April, then in May, uh, so this could really go on. But what seems to be happening is the Chinese have really escalated their pressure on Canada to release Meng Wanzhou. So uh, we know that uh, her lawyers have been in court uh, up until now trying to get all of this thrown out. Is that behind us now? Is that over? And are now are we moving on to the actual process itself? I don't think 
anything's ever over, apparently, in yeah. this case, because of the appeals processes that can string it out. What's happened is that over time, she has her, her very good legal team, which is composed of lawyers very carefully um, put together, for, you know, a team from all across Canada, top lawyers in a number of provinces are on her team, and they are arguing uh, a number of different things that uh, over time, Canada doesn't have jurisdiction, there was no crime committed in Canada, therefore, you know, she has to be very, no, no, what she was charged of, there's really something like 12 charges, but essentially fraud, bank fraud, uh, that would be a crime in Canada, so that was thrown out. Where she's centering her uh, hopes right now is on the legal claim that the U.S. has tainted the process by its actions, and therefore the extradition request should be disallowed. It sounds as if the judge that's hearing this, the Associate Chief Justice in B.C., is not sympathetic to that view. So is that it for that part of this process? Is it now the extradition process? Well, we now have a situation where China has upped the ante on Canada by as pointed out, the Schellenberg case, and then suddenly bringing forth the Spavor case. Let's, let's back up a bit. Remember, it's been almost a 1,000 days since the two Michaels were arbitrary detention, hostage diplomacy, uh, was invoked after her arrest, after Ming Wanzhou's arrest, at the request of the United States to extradite her to the U.S. over fraud charges relating to violating the sanctions on Iran. American sanctions on Iran are really at the crux of all this. So one of the hopes has been all along that uh, as this carries on and on and on, that the U.S., particularly under a new administration, which wants to get back into the Iranian deal, would then just drop the case. So her very first line of defense would be, I, I plan to win this in court. And, that's, and remember, she's not on trial here. This is a question of whether Canada has um, the where is the bar for extradition to the U.S. in order to stand trial? So the chain of evidence and the level of evidence is quite different in the two cases. But her first line of defense is, let's throw it out. I'm not going to have to right. you know, withdraw. I'm going to win in court. The second is the U.S. would then say, never mind. We don't want her anymore because we've changed our mind because this is all based on the U.S. situation. So the um, over-sanctions and over-Iran... Therefore, this case is hinging very much on U.S. and, and uh, Chinese relations, with us caught in the middle. But meanwhile, we are in the middle. We have played our part in all this. And that court case uh, continues separate and ongoing based on the legal arguments of the two sides involved. Actually, there's three sides involved because there's hers, her legal team, there's the Canadian position, and then Canada also has appointed a representative of the American position in this court case. So whether this court case is leading to anything or not, we don't, is this really the end? And, right. and we don't have reason to think it is. But back to the situation we're in, clearly China is hoping to escalate the pressure on Canada, and it's doing so in the Schellenberg case. Well, first of all, by arresting the two Michaels, but not bringing them to trial. Suddenly mm-hmm. they brought them to trial in March, and we don't know the outcome of that. That was held. So they're really playing a very cagey game, saying, well, you don't know what's happening. Suddenly now we're saying, okay, yes, we, we know what happened in the trial. 
there's a conviction in Schellenberg's case who was upgraded to death penalty, death penalty over drug smuggling. China does have a zero tolerance uh, policy towards drug smuggling. They've executed others. Uh, there's, there's some other Canadian cases involved. But beyond that, there's also the situation of now we know uh, Mr. Spavor, who's now been convicted. And uh, we knew the conviction, of course, was there because once he's charged, he's convicted. But now we have the sentence. So they are escalating this. Fascinating to me, Scott, is this. They are clearly trying to put much more leverage on Canada at a key point in the Meng Wanzhou trial. That seems to be the name of the game. What's interesting is the possibility that uh, China is holding out here. China is basically saying, we're going to bring a stick to this. We are now really leaning on you hard at this key moment in the trial process. But there's a carrot. So if you go along with us, if you get cooperative, if you can stop this, we have, and this is based on past precedent, precedent is convict and deport. So they said deportation is part of this sentence, but when is not specified. And of course, after that, there's still the Kovrig case where they can continue this game of increasing leverage of carrot and stick. So are we to assume, Elliot, that what's going on between closed or, or, or that going on between closed doors is some sort of plea bargaining uh, discussion between the United States uh, and China? In other words, how do we all save face? How do we, uh, uh, I guess, present guilt and then send everybody home? Is, is that is, many are talking of that solution? Is that what's happening here? And by by including uh, the term deportation uh, in this sentence, that is the parachute. Yes, there's two things going on: what we can see and what we can't see. <laughs> yeah. But what we can see is, I think, as we've just been discussing, they've really increased the pressure on Canada to gain leverage at a key moment in the trial process over Meng Wanzhou. Behind the scenes, we know that conversation is going on. We know that uh, our ambassador to Beijing spent three weeks, I think you and I talked about it at the time, three weeks in Washington. Mm-hmm. That's a long time for an ambassador from China. So clearly there was a deal being discussed at that point, apparently about something called deferred prosecution. She mm-hmm. would admit guilt and then not be convicted of anything. And that's an established procedure. But apparently that didn't go anywhere, although that's perhaps still on the table. We don't know the behind the scenes of discussion. We know that uh, the United States really has elevated their interest in this case. It was done under Mike Pompeo and a bit under Trump. But Wendy Sherman, the undersecretary of state, was just in China, and she raised it at this. Uh, so directly, the United States is raising the, our case with the Chinese. And that was just done again in terms of this trial where uh, Tony Blinken has, has condemned what's going on in front of us. That is the U.S. Secretary of State. And then, interestingly, Canada's real strength is in multilateralism, uh, Scott. And so Canada has really mobilized uh, a lot of international support uh, leading the way on, a, on an international treaty against uh, arbitrary detention. And almost all major countries have signed up on that. In this case, there were, <laughs> there were 50 diplomats on hand in Beijing hmm. uh, from 25 countries, including the U.S. and and uh, the U.K. and uh, Australia, interesting enough, they have a bilateral dispute. So a lot of international pressure and, and uh, 
visible support for Canada using Canada's strength in multilateralism. But none of that guarantees anything at this point. So obviously, as you and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the, the the CFO case in Vancouver will proceed as it will proceed. This is just another step in that ongoing thing, and it could take years. On the other hand, as you mentioned, the other case is what's going on in regard to the actual charges and, and the, the negotiation between China and the United States. Elliot, I think I've said this to you before, but and this was a, a, a couple of weeks or months ago, months ago, I guess, that the wild card here is going to be the Beijing Olympics. Because if you look at the timelines for the trial with, with the Huawei CFO and then the, the two Michaels, now what's happening with Schellenberg and then their, uh, their sentences and such, how can they possibly walk into the Beijing Olympics with all of this the way that it is? This must be tidied up or people are going to start screaming boycott, as they yes. already are. Yes, that boycott is in the air. Um we just finished the, the Olympics in Tokyo, and everybody's, I think, caught up in that spirit right now. Moving on to Beijing is quite a different matter. Uh, my view on this is, is uh, you know, I'm not an athlete personally, but like everybody else, I followed all this. And to, to blight the hopes of our young athletes uh, globally, not just Canadian, uh, is, is difficult. But keep in mind that the Canadian Parliament a lot, and a number of other parliaments around the world and legislative bodies have condemned the Chinese uh, in terms of genocide. <laughs> so to accuse a country of genocide and then send your people in yeah. at a time of dispute where they arrest people, I think uh, the leader of the opposition in, in Canada, has, Mr. O'Toole, has said, it's not safe. They might just pick up a few more. Yeah. So um, this is a very fraught circumstance. To me, the obvious solution is hold the Olympics, just hold, don't hold them in Beijing, move them someplace else. But this is uh, beyond my pay scale to make happen, but that seems to be a logical way out of the of the question you just raised. I guess my point here, Elliot, was, you know, we always, you know, hear the, hear the chatter from China. They don't give, uh, they, don't, they don't care about Canada. They don't care at all. They don't care what they say, say about us. They've said some pretty unflattering things right. through their officials and such. Uh, and they don't care about our position economically in the world. However, uh, the Olympics is another story, and this is something that can present a black eye to them, uh, certainly on the world stage, and they want everybody to come together and hold hands and have a kumbaya moment when it seems impossible at this time. So have they? has their position changed from one, from one uh, of not caring to, oh, wait a sec, this could all come back and bite us here? We've had, we've had polling now uh, from the Pew organization, PEW organization, uh, which shows that Canada, Canada has shown a huge, sharp drop in, in their view and the attitudes toward China over the thousand days yeah. of this, almost thousand days. But that's also true around the world, that China has taken a huge reputational hit globally. And country after country after country, there's been a, a sharp drop in the, the do, you, do you have a favorable view or unfavorable view of the People's Republic of China. So they are paying a reputational cost at a time when they want to assert global leadership based on their great successes in COVID and economically and you know, uh, we, are, we, are, we are an emerged power, not an emerging power. We are a major power. And we are going to be the dominant power by 2050. We've got a map on how to get there. So the Chinese are 
on the one hand saying we are good global citizens and on the other behaving in a way which suggests that's not the case. Do they care? At some point it catches up with you. Uh, somebody, a number of my colleagues, but one of them just said, you know, Canada has allies. We've seen that you know, multilaterally. Canada can do things quite clearly bilaterally between China and Canada we're at a disadvantage. That's an asymmetrical relationship. But globally, because we can work with others, China, uh, Canada has, and the U.S. has allies. All that China has is business partners. <laughs> they've, got, they've, they've got states around the world that rely on China economically. And that's quite a different kettle of fish. Uh, where do you see this going in the short term? In, I, in the next week or two? You know, we have the, the case of uh, Kevin Garrett, a Canadian who was imprisoned in 2016, and his wife, Julia, over bogus charges. Uh, and they were, they were con- the same thing. It was spying. They were held in jail. She was released on bail. But he was held in, in the same prison, Scott, in the same prison <laughs> where Michael Spavor currently is. Kevin Garrett was held there in 2016 for over 700 days. And he's suddenly, um, after private negotiations, apparently, uh, he was convicted and then deported in 36 hours after the conviction, after being sentenced to seven years in jail. What we can hope is that something like that is going to happen. But I, I suspect as long as Meng Wanzhou is on in our side, you know, on our property and inside Canada, as long as she stays inside Canada, I'm afraid the two Michaels and Hussein Chilio and others who are on Schellenberg, I'm afraid that uh, they're all going to be in a perilous uh, state. I want to ask you something here, Elliot, and I'm not sure if you want to answer it or not, but I'm going to throw it out there. Uh, I stumbled upon an interesting article in the Toronto Star today. It's an opinion piece, and the headline is, If China hadn't targeted white Canadians, would Chinese-Canadian relations be business as usual? What are your thoughts? Well, I'm not sure what's behind that. I don't. I don't. That's. I don't live in Toronto, <laughs> so I, I don't. All I have is the headline. Actually, this is out of Van. This was out of Van, out of the Van, uh, Vancouver bureau. But yeah, I, I was just. I was kind of surprised. And again, referred to the the other people who uh, have been charged with drug offenses in China, the other Canadians and such. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I just. I. I don't know. I just find it as a, a weird angle. Well, I one. I, I do have a a view not necessarily of that particular article or this particular situation. I'm very concerned that the views of Canadians and around the world now, but in Canada, towards China, having been so soured by what's going on, and then the mysterious case, which I think perhaps you and I discussed of what went on in the virology lab in Winnipeg, and mm-hmm. I'm very concerned about, about the rise of anti-Asian sentiment. There is no reason whatsoever why the behavior of the Communist Party of China or the mysterious situation perhaps relating to security of two individuals uh, in, who, who are scientists, that should not be reflected on the streets of Canada in, in terms of a rising you know, yellow peril, the return. Canada's had a dark history in this. Uh, the return of, 
of uh, prejudice toward Asians. So I'm, that's, that's something I think we have to watch very carefully. So how do we stop that? How do we fix this? How do we, how do we balance this? And, and how do we make sure that we're talking, that the, the people understand we're talking about the Chinese Communist Party here and not the Canadian, Chinese Canadians, yeah, or, or the Chinese Canadian immigrants that we have living next door. Or in, I mean, Canada is a land of immigrants. We all know that. Yes, and I happen to be in Ottawa, and if you go out to Canada to the to the uh, high tech park that exists out there, if you happen to be there as I was one day when business hours were over and people were pouring out, the people who came pouring out of the business park or the high tech sector as were uh, very visibly visible minorities, and in particular mm-hmm. Chinese origin. We don't know people who are clearly of Chinese descent and of South Asian descent. And that's been Canada's strength. This is where this is where we shine compared to other countries. As we mm-hmm. found a way to, uh, through multiculturalism policies in particular, but also our general strength in terms of increasing tolerance uh, over time. Over time, and there's dark histories to overcome. But the possibility that we have the peoples of the world inside Canada who are Canadians is a great strength for Canada. It's been a, an engine of our economic growth. If you want to look at, as I have done in other, wearing other hats, if you want to look at immigration, um, almost the total growth in the Canadian population and much of the economic growth that goes with that rests on people who have come from other parts of the world. And a lot mm-hmm. of those are either from China or from India or South Asia generally. Well said. Elliot Tepper with us, Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Always uh, fascinating to chat with you, Elliot. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Uh, thank you, Scott. Enough of the guests. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. Is there anyone out there that is having a hard time proving to someone, anyone, business or government organization, that they have in fact been vaccinated? Is there anyone out there that has been asked to show proof of vaccination and has had their emailed pharmacy or clinic certificate denied? I have not heard of one single case. In fact, when I visited my mother in long-term care, I completely forgot I had to show proof of vaccine. However, I had already taken a picture of my vaccination form with the code and had the confirmation email on my phone. And that was more than sufficient to enter a long-term care home, which is where most of the deaths have occurred. I can certainly understand having a vaccine passport as part of your credentials for international travel and can be easily used as the ultimate identification that any international passport is. However, that is a federal responsibility, not provincial. But to have an individual passport for each and every province in Canada is not only confusing, it's redundant and a waste of taxpayers' money. So, if we are not having a hard time proving who has been vaccinated and who hasn't, why do we need another government document to carry that could just as easily be copied illegally as anything else? Let's focus on getting everyone vaccinated instead of creating a political problem that does not even exist. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Um, first of all, I, I totally believe everyone should be vaccinated who possibly can. Um, uh, I'm vaccinated uh, and encourage everybody else to do so. But I do not understand why everyone is jumping and screaming about a vaccine passport. And here's my reasoning. Who has been asked to show proof of vaccination? 
You don't ask, you know, you're not asked when you go into a store. You're not asked when you, uh, 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 you know, whether it's a, a, an LCBO outlet, a grocery store, whether you go into a mall, you can go into a patio, a restaurant. You're not asked for proof of vaccination. And the reason that is, is because it's not mandatory in Canada. I mean, we're encouraging and, and we're talking about making it mandatory for educational staff because the kids can't get vaccinated and for healthcare workers for obvious reasons. But other than that, in long-term care, and I've been to all those places I was just talking about in the last few weeks since we've opened up, where else do we need it? Well, the restaurant's not going to let me in unless I show ID. Well, where is that happening in Ontario? I mean, they're talking about that in Quebec, but I guess the the reasoning is they want everyone vaccinated, and if you don't get va- if you don't show uh, get vaccinated, you're not getting in. But I don't think that's happening here, and and I don't know, maybe that all change, and even you know with the universities and stuff, and and you know if you want to be in residence, you got to be vaccinated. If you want to be in class, you got to be vaccinated. I, I, I'm sure your doctor's or your pharmacy certificate, your clinic certificate, will serve proof as it does for all of your other vaccinations. So I, I'm not sure having a vaccine passport for every single province uh, all across the country is the way to go. For travel, I get it. You know, part of your international passport because you're flying in and out of the country, uh, into other countries, and that could be used across the provinces as well. But to have uh, a different passport for every single province, to me, does not seem to make sense. Let's bring in uh, Colleen Flood, professor in the Faculty of Law, University of Ottawa, University Research Chair in uh, Health Law and Policy, Director of the University of Ottawa Centre of Health Law Policy and Ethics. Colleen, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Um, um, very well, Scott. Great to chat with you today. Colleen, am I missing the point here? Why do, do we need a passport considering what we have other than, you know, part of your international passport for travel? Yeah. Um, I think just to take a step back, um, I think we have to acknowledge the urgency to have almost everybody who can be vaccinated, vaccinated in the face of the fourth wave. Um, so, of running the numbers about um, you know, what kind of percentage of the population we need vaccinated to try to fend off um, the Delta variants and probably uh, other emerging variants from around the world. And it's in the range of 90 plus percent um, of Canadians. Um, we're cruising on, on an average of about 70% and that, you know, there's wide fluctuations across the country in terms of vaccination rates. So let's just be clear what we're seeing from the fourth wave in other jurisdictions like Florida and so on, um, that this will uh, jeopardise the health of those who can't be vaccinated. Currently, our under 12-year-olds who can't be vaccinated, people who for health reasons uh, can't be vaccinated, and um, the people who are vaccine hesitant, and they may have some good reasons for that, you know, they they haven't been vaccinated and the anti-vaxxers. So all of those I, yeah, people, I, you know, I, some I 30% com- of are at high I completely risk. Under- I completely understand your call, your point here, Colleen, and agree with you 100%. We have to get as many vaccinated, and th- this fourth wave is something we have to be incredibly concerned about. My question is, who is asking for more proof of vaccination than we already have? 
uh, again, I encourage everyone to get vaccinated. But I don't understand, like, nobody's asking me to see proof that I've been vaccinated twice, other than to get into my long, uh, a long-term care home, which my mother is, to visit her. Like, you can go into the mall, you can go into the restaurant, you can go wherever you want, and no one's asking you for proof. Now, I can see traveling and, and gyms and, and or, sorry, um, uh, healthcare workers and education for obvious reasons. But again, I, I don't understand... I, I can see the reason to prove you've been vaccinated, but I don't understand what another document will solve. Why? Who is asking us for this document that we don't already have? So a vex, a, sure. So a, a vaccine um, certificate, proof of vaccination, um, it's not another document. It's just you know a way of, of showing the fact that you've been vaccinated or can't be vaccinated so that we can Do we not already have you know, that? Do we not... Al- do we not already have that, though, on the certificate and the DR code that the clinic, the doctor, the pharmacy gave us when we were vaccinated, right. and then the certificate of confirmation? And, you know, others have said, well, that can be yeah. counterfeited. Well, so can anything else. So, uh, again, I-, I agree with you 100% on the need to get people vaccinated. But to me, this sounds like a discussion of making vaccines mandatory and the sort of the side door into that is to, to make vaccine passports. But unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you want to look at this, vaccines are not mandatory in Canada at this point, other than for certain situations. So, uh, again, I, I agree with what you're saying so, 100%, but, but I'm, not sure, I'm not sure what another vaccine passport is good for. Yeah, so the vaccine passports have different use, uses. So you've already mentioned a couple so to prove uh, to go into a long-term care setting, and you actually just explained, you ended up having it on your phone and were able to show that documentation. So that's one use of a vaccine passport. It could be used in other settings. We're talking University of Ottawa, um, a requirement. But to make again, use again, again, Colleen, I go back to the same thing. Uh, everyone has a phone for the most part, uh, and if they don't, they can carry the piece of paper around with them. So why is, yep. and, and it is right now, because nobody, there is no passports. Nobody's asking for passports, and we've got over 80% with the first dose that are eligible, over 70% with the second dose that's eligible, so we're well on our way uh, without another document. Uh, but again, I, I don't no, see, just not, as just uh, as no, I didn't have well my document... Sorry, like I, you, I, I don't see, I don't understand which having another document we, will do. No, it's not another document, right? So a, a passport or proof of certification of vaccination will be able to be used in multiple kinds of settings. So of course we would start with high risk settings. If we had to, then we could potentially move to other settings. So for example, you just mentioned gyms, um, and then you changed your mind about saying that. Why did you do that? No, I, Isn't I, gym please, please, no, 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 no. I like, I, I don't, because I don't know that gyms are or are not asking. I'm sure there might be individual gyms that are asking for proof of but vaccination. They are high so, risk settings, right? I, under, I understand that. Care settings are Again, yeah. I'm not disagreeing so, with anything you're saying, Colleen. All I'm saying is, is do we need a provincial passport? Uh, that's different right. from what we're already getting from our doctor and the clinic or the hospital that we went to. Yeah. I mean, I certainly understand it for international travel as part of your international passport because you're going from place to place, yeah. and, and that would work across the provinces as well. I just do not see the need yeah. for a provincial passport. I think it's, 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 it's duplication. It's redundant. So at the border currently, 
what you have is is not really it's not attached to your passport it's just um you load up whatever documentation you have about your vaccination from whatever country you're coming from and then you put that in so we don't actually have international standards around that yet but if we did have um a secured um ability to create a, a, a digital vaccine passport, as you say, that's associated with our passports. And yes, you're right. Then we could potentially use that as well for proof of vaccination in different settings uh, within Ontario. Um, my feeling is that requiring um, digital proof of vaccination in, in certain settings, along with other precautionary steps that we have to take, that we need to do all of this right now to get us as a population up to 90 plus percent. Currently, we're at 70 percent double vaccinated. That's a long way off 90 plus percent. This is the hardest percentage group to get to. Um, and so we need to encourage folks to get vaccinated. And there are a variety of tools that we have at our disposal. One of them is to put in place vaccine passports for entry into high-risk areas, right, and to require vaccine passports for travel, as you said. I think we need to use all tools that we have at our disposal to stop this fourth wave that's about so to crash should, onto our shores. So, Colleen, should this be just one federal passport that works across country with travel? We all know passport's the ultimate ID internationally. It'll trump everything. So, Or is it? should each I, province have one? And, and does that not I, make it more well, confusing? I mean, it would be ideal if we could have, you know, one ring to rule them all. But um, with the nature of federal, provincial, argy-bargy, you know, um, yeah. that's much more difficult. But given that Canadians like to travel and if everybody, you know, goes along with this and get, you know, they will if they're going anywhere, they're going to need to have proof of vaccination and it's going to need to be in a way that other countries believe is secure. So you can't just, you know, bullshit up something and load it up into mm. your phone and flash it as you're going into the EU. Um, you'll have to have, you know, something that the other states believe to be secure that is a government um, uh, authorization or validation. And I, I, agree with that I agree with you 100% there, Colleen, on the federal level. I'm just not sure it needs to be done on a provincial level. I'm not sure who is asking for proof of vaccine and is not getting it from what we already have. I mean, again, we've already had 80% think, and 70% for the for the vaccine, I think and yet this is a, working. I know a number, yeah, I know a number, you know, heard from a number of businesses and so on that would like to ask for proof of vaccination. They would like their customers to be safe and their employers to be safe, to be able to make sure that we're not going down into more lockdowns and, and further. Again, Colleen, I get that 100%, but it seems that if we don't get a vaccine passport, we're going down that hole. And I don't believe that's the case. Again, I agree with you 100%, Colleen, but you know that merchant, that restaurant, that gym can ask you for the same thing the long-term care home has asked me for. And it has a DR code right. on it. And and that, you know, my goodness, if that can be counterfeited, so can any other government yeah. document. Uh, well, I mean, the there's an ease of use with a, a digital um, vaccine use. And I think 
lots of us might, I myself would probably prefer to have it in a secure sort of format that can't be hacked. A piece of paper can be easily reused. I would like to have some rules about what those businesses can do with that information. I would like to make all of that secure, but I still would like to go, you know, if I can to the gym and know that it's as safe as it possibly can be. Um, you know, you, yes, it's true. You could flash uh, a bit of paper, but, um, you know, your privacy, your information can then be gathered by um, businesses and so on. And I think we want to make sure that businesses are, you know, not uh, unduly and excluding people that they shouldn't be. So, for example, someone who actually can't be vaccinated, that they're accommodating them somehow. So, you know, I have concerns about just leaving it to the private sector. I have concerns about not enabling the private sector to be able to do this well. Um, and I think that all kind of flows from not providing this information to people in a safe and secure format. You know, I have dragging bits of paper around, yellow cards. I don't know if you had that for your kids, but my uh-huh. kid has that. I mean, it's a pain in the butt. I can never find it anywhere. It's so much easier and simpler for it to be, um, you know, on um, on in a digital form. Also, as we go forward from here, Scott, you know, we're going to find that we're going to need boosters. We're going to need different kind of combinations of vaccines. The vaccines that we've all got on our arms right now are not going to last long enough. And um, depending on the combo, they might not be strong enough against existing variants. So to keep ourselves safe, we're going to need to know, you know, um, in different situations, you know, look, do you have the AstraZeneca and the Pfizer? Is that going to be enough for the situation that you're coming into? And things like a digital vaccine passport, you know, we can we can kind of calibrate that much easier than we can. I agree with I, I agree then, with that 100%, but I think that's got to be done at the federal level. I got to let you go. We're plumb out of time, Colleen. Fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for the time. Colleen Flood, professor in the Faculty of Law, University of Ottawa, and University Research Chair in Health Law and Policy. Thank you so much. Break here. We're coming back. Let's bring in uh, Thomas Tenkate, professor, School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University. Thomas, I'm sure you've heard us talking. Do we need another... Uh, you know, again, I can see bringing all this information together and, and having it all digitized and such, but uh, only on the federal level. Do, do we need something individually for each and every province? Is this redundant or not? Yeah. Hi, Scott. Thanks very much for, you, for the opportunity. I think uh, I agree that, uh, you know, uh, uh, based on a provincial by provincial basis could end up having something that's quite disjointed. And so, so, I think it's, uh, you know, from the, the best perspective would be to have something that is consistent across each of the provinces and, and, and would be consistent for, for like international travel as well. So, so uh, you know, like I think vaccine passports overall are a, uh, are a good idea uh, from, from a public health perspective, but the actual, so the way they, they're implemented and uh, some of the sort of logistical challenges, uh, you know, mean that you know their benefits might get a bit uh uh sort of overtaken by by some of these other challenges so so i think overall they i think they're a good idea and and uh but but yeah there there are some you know ongoing challenges with them um 
again, I, I'm agreeing with, with getting as many people vaccinated as we possibly can, but are we having a problem proving to people who is vaccinated and who isn't at this point with already 80% of us, at least with the first dose, who's, who are eligible? Are we having a problem? Uh, like I, I've told other people, I went into my mother's long-term care home. I had forgotten my piece of paper, but I have all the email and the DR code and whatever on my phone. That was sufficient enough to get me into a long-term care home, which, of course, is where all the deaths were, the majority of them. So why would I need a separate card provincially? It just doesn't make sense to me. Are, are we having a problem proving that we've been vaccinated or not? Yeah, like I, th- like I think what where i where i think these are this is you know the impetus is coming from is is uh for for once you're talking sort of retail establishments and other venues where you don't want uh you you want to be able to have someone sh- in essence show i show proof of vaccination very quickly in a consistent way just like as if yeah. you were going to a pub and you wanted you know you had to show you show you know ID for your for your age. You know, I think it's it's more about sort of having that process uh, consistent and clear and simple uh, at at whatever the uh, venues you're wanting to go to is. And so so I like I agree that there's there's various ways we can do that already. the The issue is is how do you uh, make it uh, sort of consistent and simple for the the uh, you know the the retailers and the other establishments to sort of verify it in a in a very you know relatively quick way and uh, uh, and I think that's that's one of the issues for it. I totally get that, Thomas. But again, that reminds me of way back when, when I was 19 and we had an age majority card in order to get into a bar in Ontario. But of course, then we realized that was duplication because we could use our license with a picture on it. So uh, again, I think we have the same issue here. I just think, and to me, it's like, it's about making the mandatory as opposed to proving. I don't think there's a problem proving who's been vaccinated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely with, you know, with the uh, system that we have already and, uh, you know, as you said, when people get vaccinated here, it their, their details uh, go into a, uh, into a, you know, a computer system and you get an email with, uh, with a record and, and that, that system is, is uh, linked to all the other systems. And so, so basically, you know, the government, knows who's been vaccinated when they were vaccinated what they were vaccinated with so so that that information is already there and in say in ontario everyone's getting a consistent sort of document document yeah. to show that so so you know so there is already a system in place the question is you know do is that sort of do we need another one another system like you're saying and uh, and what's the reasons for that and my sense is that you know one reason is potentially to make you know ease and and, yeah. and speed yeah thomas i gotta cut you off there thomas tank okay. professor school of occupational and public health ryerson university thank you so much thomas thank you uh jim is on the line do you think jim that uh passport uh vaccine passports on a provincial level are needed no it goes against every decency that we have as freedom-loving people. See, Jim, I totally disagree with you there, because that to me means absolutely nothing. Uh, It's a part of your health record. That's not the issue here, Jim. The issue here is when I got vaccinated, I got a DR code, I got uh, a a form from my pharmacy or doctor or clinic, and then an email was sent to me confirming where I stand, if I am vaccinated or if I am not vaccinated. I'm not sure how that I'm not sure how that is needed. Anything above that is needed. That's my point. 
my health records as your health records are private and personal. Can I ask you, as I try to let you into the grocery store, if you've had an STD? No, but that's not killing the world, Jim. So those it are two is. totally different. No, it's no, not, it's Jim. Not. Thanks for the call, Jim. I don't want to. I don't want to go there, Jim, because you're making it. You're taking it way to the extremes. That's not the discussion we're having. Do they ask you your blood type when you go into the grocery store? No, because that's not putting people in the intensive care unit. Man, can we stay on the page? All right, let's move on to something completely different. Feel free to send me an email. I'll try to get to the rest of yours as quickly as I can. All right, let's uh, switch the gears and uh, talk about an election and bring in our favorite East Coaster, uh, Tim Powers. Oh, man, I think I'm going to get, I think I got the terminology wrong there. He's going to yell at me for that. Tim Powers, Chairman of Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data with us now. Tim, how are you? I hope you're well. Oh, Scott, that's okay. East Coaster is all right, buddy. Is that, that one okay? That brings it all in. I remember I screwed in. up. I think I screwed up Maritimer and what and did I call Atlantic Canadian. And Atlantic Canadian. You can clearly learn from that. And that's good. And I don't require you to give me a passport to prove that you're doing your work to understand Canada. How's that? Uh, all right. Since you brought it up, do you want to weigh in on this? Um, everybody's screaming for a passport. And doesn't what we already have suffice? I can see it on a federal level with your passport and travel and in health Canada data, but I don't understand why we need one provincially. Uh, we, well, I'll, I'll give you the practical example. What I have, as you probably do, is a certificate from Ontario saying I'm doubly vaxxed. I got it electronically, as you were saying to your guests, or sorry, to your listeners, I'm your guest. Uh, I need to show that that piece of paper when I go to Newfoundland because they require that for those of us who are coming to Newfoundland and Labrador uh, or going to Newfoundland and Labrador from the rest of Canada. So that is sufficient proof for them that I have a particular status. I have to fill out a form and attach that. So it's serving as a form of vaccine passport for me to get to my home province. So it does do that job. But I think you were touching on it. Vaccine passports are more about uh, the utilization of them as a tool to get the vaccine hesitant and the vaccine resistors to get vaccinated because it, they, to do things, will need this passport document to get in and out of places. So that is really what I believe they're more about. But we really don't need that because we already got that thing that you already said. Right, but if you don't have that, you and I have it, but there may be others who have refused to get vaccines or has. Then that's not the issue here. Then the issue, Tim, is not about a vaccine passport. It's about getting you to get your vaccine. That's a different issue. So again, and that's what I really a tool is dressed up to address that issue. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. But you know, people are saying you have to get a vaccine passport, assuming you're going to need one to do anything, and you won't because we don't already with eighty percent of the people vaccinated, and we we don't need anything more than what you already have on your device. So uh, again, I can see. But I, 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 like, are people that stupid that they realize you have to get this passport that you'll never be asked for or that what you have in your phone is sufficient enough? It just doesn't make sense to me. 
Well, I, I guess they've probably done some research in different places to suggest that if you, it's like, you know, some people don't get a license and they still drive a car, but if you get caught, the penalties for doing that are quite prohibitive. So I, I assume some research has been done to say if you can't convince them through moral suasion, the resistors, to get, uh, to get vaccinated, then maybe this requirement will get them there. Uh, so I'm guessing, Scott, that's what uh, what the governments, some governments are thinking. And I don't know if it, it assumes people are stupid, but perhaps it assumes if you create some sort of system that has a, a, a law to it or a requirement to it, there's a better chance it'll get followed. Uh, again, I, uh, to me, and as you just said, I believe it, it, the 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 idea behind this is to get more people vaccinated. It's got nothing to do with showing proof of your vaccination, and it's somehow it's like tricking people. Right? It, it's it's well, and you know, we used that example earlier. It's like they used to have the old days when I was nineteen had an age and majority card. Well, it's yeah. gone now because it's outdated because all of that's on your license with your picture. So again, the same sort of thing here. Uh, I, I'm not sure of having another document i guess it might convince some to get vaccinated thinking that i'm going to get held out of walmart because i don't have my card which is just a load of malarkey yeah because uh, then it's going to get down to enforcement now hey having been a bouncer on doors uh, i've seen some creative ids in the past scott uh, <laughs> yeah. and you know it's you're going to those are from the government <laughs> well, some of the ones I saw, I, the, my favorites were the the uh, the bogus uh, relaminated university IDs yeah, I... that people would pass off as oh no, oh, there's a government this is a, yeah whatever here give me twenty bucks and maybe I'll let you in shocking I didn't say wrong, <laughs> but, but some did some did. All right, let's get to uh, an election. Interesting article uh, in the CBC today, cbc.ca. It says, election soon or election later for Trudeau. It's a gamble either way. Is this window closing? Hey, well, I think it's open till Sunday, probably around 10 a.m. <laughs> Is that the rumor? That's the rumor we're hearing, right, that he's going to make well, an announcement yeah, on Sunday? They. That yes, I mean, the, 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 they, being the Liberals, have suggested if the election is going to be called this week, it's likely to be called between Friday and Sunday. But if you're Justin Trudeau and you want a short window, then you probably go Sunday because you want to keep making government announcements for the rest of the week and you've got some other business to tend to. So that's where we sit here right now. I think they're seeing the... Yeah, you know, the the numbers in Ontario tick up a bit into the mid three hundreds. I think they were today. Um, so yeah, there's risk. I mean, I, I keep saying this to you when we talk about it. Um, you know, Newfoundland and Labrador, classic example. It's a four week election turned into a ten week election. The government part, governing party that had a significant lead won a majority, but a, a one much lesser majority than they thought that they would. So the risk to the prime minister is. You know, something similar happens here. There are big variant breakouts in the key vote provinces uh, where he hopes to win, like Ontario and Quebec and B.C., and that really irritates people who figure, you know what, he should have known better. He's trying to be opportunistic, and maybe that changes the way they vote. So that's the risk. 
So what will uh, we were we've talked about this for uh, all through the pandemic. There was a window there after the first wave where we thought there was going to be a, a big to do that never happened. So uh, in, we all know this was an election that that was wanted by certain parties, but nobody wants to trigger this. So how or who will trigger this on Sunday? What will uh, w- will the prime minister just come out and say, yeah, it's time to go? Or will he try to introduce something that will offend everybody? Well, he'll probably say Parliament's been been offensive. He can't get things done. He's seeking a mandate. We're at an important juncture. You know, we're at an important juncture in the life of the pandemic. I, uh, it's time to go and talk to the people about what they want. I, I suspect you know they've been trying to put out the the toxic argument for a while. It's harder to do because if you look at the legislative record, they've got budgets through. They've got all the key pieces of legislation related to par- um, the pandemic, excuse me, all got through. So I'm not sure people will buy that. I'm not sure the prime minister's too worried about that. I think what he's more concerned about, Scott, as it relates to the, you know, the window of time that he's looking at is he wants to get this thing over by the 20th of September. And that would be the election day, likely minimum run of 36 days if he calls the election anywhere between Friday and Sunday. Why the 20th of September? Because school returns in Ontario and most of the country on Tuesday, September 7th takes a bit more than two weeks usually to see if there's any significant outbreak in school and the like. And if there's going to be any of that, you won't really see it until the 23rd or the 24th of September. So, you know, pandemic considerations are at, at play there in another part of this window. Uh, Duff Conacher from Democracy Watch says this is all illegal unless there's a non-confidence vote of some sort. Is there any weight to that? No, uh, I, I mean, no. It's not really. Yeah, I understand Mr. Conacher's argument. He's going to say there's a fixed ele- election date and he has the confidence of the House and there's other ways. So he's breaking the fixed election date law. Stephen Harper broke that law. If you follow, if you believe that is accurate uh, as well when he pushed uh, pushed uh, an election ahead of the four-year window. As long as the governor general says yes, and she's really the only person now who can stop this likely election, and I, d- I doubt she will because the convention has been to um, secede to the, the wishes of the, of, the, of the prime minister of the day, um, this thing is on. So it will be the prime minister that, that does, in fact, pull the trigger then? Well, yes. Even the, the parliament is shot, um, so there's no yeah. confidence vote to be lost. Yeah. You will have to go over and make the argument to the governor general as to why he's seeking the election. She will have to accept the argument. She could say, you know what, prime minister, no, bring parliament back and maintain the confidence of the house there. She could say, no, I think there are opposition parties that could work together to govern. I'm going to give them a chance, but the the chances of those two things happening are as uh, likely as you and I starting for the Leafs uh, come in uh, come October when the season begins. Well, considering the team last year, Tim, maybe that's not <laughs> such a reach. Uh, so well, I'll take the uh, money. I mean, I'll take uh, yeah, I'll take sure money. Uh, so obviously this week the news come down about Schellenberg and uh, then shortly after that late last night uh, uh, Michael Spaver his 11 year sentence we're expecting to hear uh, from uh, what Kovrig's fate will be soon although who knows you know what the play is there uh, how is this affecting a federal election 
Not much at the moment, unfortunately. Um, where I think this dynamic will take off a little bit is something you saw start to play out yesterday before we heard the unfortunate news about Mr. Spavor, and that is boycott or not Beijing, boycott or not. Um, you saw Mr. O'Toole try and push that debate. I think he'll use that boycott or not argument because we're just come out of the Olympics. People are connected to it to bring in, you know, Trudeau week on China. Trudeau hasn't rescued these two Canadians and the, the third gentleman that is over there who was just convicted of, of uh, murder, manslaughter, excuse me, I can't recall. Um, uh, so that's where where it will play. And O'Toole will argue the prime minister's, you know, weak, uh, not strong on foreign policy. I don't know how much attention it will get, which is unfortunate, and certainly I don't think it's going to move the dial on getting the two Michaels back, which is the thing we ought to be concerned about. Uh, O'Toole went on to say that uh, obviously uh, supports uh, more pressure on China, perhaps a boycott, and said that Canadians aren't safe in China. Your thoughts? Again, I've I've been to China once, and that was the Hong Kong portion of China. And even then, you were told to be careful. Uh, Probably, I I don't know if we're not safe in China, but I would certainly be extremely cautious in China. Uh, I I don't think the Chinese are running around. Would I feel safe to go there, Tim? Considering my chatter. Scott, you would I, I be a safe? Not, would I be a safe Canadian citizen in China today? Uh, you and I ought not go to China. How's that? Others may <laughs> want to go, but, uh, but you <laughs> if I, I if I go, will you come and bounce for me? <laughs> uh, I will take on the whole Chinese uh, security apparatus, Scott, just for you. I'll show them some George Street specials. How about so, that? So, <laughs> So uh, we're, we're, we shouldn't be laughing here, should we? Um, but you know, if, how, how, well, we how, are. You gotta how do you approach this? Not, yeah, you got to have a the, the Chinese. I, let me tell you one quick thirty-second story on all of this about the, the penetration power of the Chinese. I was on CBC one day talking about the, the lab scam scandal, and you know, talking about how if the government was trying to make a point that they're doing the right thing with China. Uh, then, and, and enforcing the rule of law. Well, they didn't do it here. Lo and behold, I said that two hours, an hour later, an hour later after I got a TV, I got a note from Chinese state television. Would I be willing to go on television? They would pay me a ton of money to participate in a discussion on this. That's how attuned they are to what their uh, opponents or enemies or contested allies say about them. So did you take them up on the offer? <laughs> Didn't take any dirty Chinese money, no. All right. So, what? Where does the you know when you look at what's happening with uh, obviously the two Michaels, uh, the Huawei CFO, and now the Olympics on the horizon? The timelines here are there's going to be a train wreck. So, I, I know China hasn't cared too much about all of this or us in the past, but in the end, what do you see this blowback? Do you see a big blowback coming just in time for the Beijing Games? Well, I think. Maybe. I mean, there's a lot more chatter about, you know, the moral necessity to boycott. Um, there are others who are saying you only penalize the athletes, and that's true. And, you too. know, I get that, Tim, but at the end of the day, where do you draw the line if you don't now? Well, appreciating the Olympics is a huge stage, as we just saw with, with Tokyo, although the other side of that, Scott, is did boycotting Canada, boycotting the 1980 games, and the Russians boycotting the LA games in 1984 solve the Cold War? I don't think so. I don't think it solves anything, but it certainly brings it to people's attention. 
Maybe. Uh, and again, that's the debate that will be had. That's the debate O'Toole wants to have because he's going to say Trudeau hasn't been, been definitive. But yeah, I'll, I'll, look, the one thing that maybe unpacks at least the Canadian angle on all of this is what happens with Menwan Joe, the CFO of Huawei. I believe mm-hmm. in the next couple of weeks there's supposed to be some direction on what uh, what happens in the next stages of our extradition process. Do the Americans stop the extradition? Does this alleviate the pressure? I don't know, but I think that whatever happens there next will perhaps indicate the path we go on as it relates to Beijing. Mm. Tim Powers with us, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Take care. This East Coaster, always happy to talk to you. Goodbye. Thanking you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. Hey, again, everybody should be vaccinated. Do what you can. Everybody, everybody, go get it done. But uh, here, I think, is the issue, as Phil writes. Uh, yes, long-term care is a mandate, but as a restaurant owner, I'm put in a tough position who's uh, with those who disagree with me because it is my decision, even if it is the right decision. If government mandates, then the customer has no right to argue with me. You're not talking about mandating the passport, Phil. You're talking about mandating the vaccine. Those are two separate issues. You're asking for a passport so you can say to people, you're not allowed in my place unless you have a vaccination. The government's not saying that. If you want to say that, you go ahead. And if you want to see proof of their vaccination, then ask for it. But making a passport will not make your job of letting people in your restaurant any any more any easier because it's not mandatory to get the vaccine. And if you decide that you don't want people in your uh, place that aren't vaccinated, and I get that, that's fine. But a passport's not going to solve that. They can just show you the proof that they've got from their clinic. But people are thinking if we make everybody get a vaccine passport, then they'll think they're not going to get in anywhere without it. And then the fact is that's not true because we're going on our daily lives right now without a vaccine passport and over 80% of the population with already their first so- shots. Oh. We are breaking news on 900 CHML. Canada will have a COVID-19 vaccine passport. Immigration Minister Marco Mendocino says Canadians are looking to start traveling again. He says the federal government is now working on vaccine credentials to help them do that. I'm pleased to inform Canadians that we are working actively with the provinces and territories on a secure pan-Canadian proof of vaccination for international travel. These credentials will have a common design across all provinces. Mendocino says the documents will include the holder's vaccination history, including the type of vaccines, date and location. No word yet when the passports will take effect. All righty, sorry. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.